welcome to Dateline New Haven on WNHHFM. This is Paul Bass inviting you to look behind the headlines on the stories that make our community tick. Well, no one is more in the national headlines from our fair burg than the gentleman who's in the studio today. And I promise you a rocking fun episode ahead. Norm Pattis, longtime criminal defense attorney, and he has been in the headlines for defending the Proud Boys at their sentencing for seditious conspiracy. Norm Pattis, thanks for coming to Dateline New Haven, and what a, what a pleasure to come chat with you. It's always fun to see you, Paul. I, I you know, we were, I was saying before, one of my favorite books is Murder in the Model City. And folks, if you like listening <laughs> to Paul, you'd like reading him more. You're reading him in the New Haven Independent. But you made the city come to life in that book. Write another one. Thank you, Norm. I don't have another one, but I am going to read your book. <laughs> so, Norm, um, you've been in the headlines a lot. You've been going to D.C. a lot to represent people from MAGA world. That's a fair way to say it, right? Yeah, yeah. As they're getting clamped down on by the Justice Department. How do you get to Washington? How do you get there? Amtrak. Okay, because you like to sit and read. You got it. You're yeah. not a person and you know, like, what's it, the last two seconds I can get jumping into an airplane? Well, you know, if it takes four and a half hours to get down there by train, but if you're going to go to the airport, you got to drive, you got to park, you got to stand on line, you got to bend and spread for security, you got to hope that the plane gets there on time, then you got to depart and you got to find transportation. It's probably a three, three and a half hour ordeal to fly from Bradley. From or even even, even tweed. Low, well maybe maybe a little less. I've 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 only done uh, Tweed once. But I you go to a the, different airport there, right? You go right. to the one that's farther away anyway. So yeah, and get so there. getting into the city's no bargain. So I I, I spent. Five, five months down in D.C. earlier in the year trying the Proud Boys case, the insurrection case. Um, got to know the city really well. So I've got my routine. I stay at the same place. Uh, it's not far from the train station. I'm a, I, I've been in D.C. twice since, since last Thursday. I left last Thursday, spent, spent the night, came, did some court work Friday. Do you I like was there DC? Monday and Tuesday. Hmm? Do you like D.C.? No, I hate it. I, you know, it I thought about soulless? Hmm? Okay. I don't know, soulless. I like New Haven. You know, I'm, I love um, New Haven. Yeah, um, I, I don't like big cities. Um, New Haven has the best of both possible worlds. It's the best place to be in Connecticut with really interesting people and people care about stuff and are kind yeah. of quirky. Yeah, and yeah. scale. You walk yeah. down the street, you see them. Yeah, and you see, yeah, DC. You feel like, man, the country's coming apart at the seams, and I'll be lucky to get out of here alive. The one place I liked in DC, I've been there often, but I always rush home. Was there's a um, throughout the country there are these black there are these black Hebrews who uh, have these vegan restaurants. Okay, you can't hear out of your... Uh... I might have the wrong headset on. That would be me. Okay. Sorry about that, Norm. How about now? Oh, you, you... there you are. So wow. D.C. has Soul Veg. They have these... Uh, black Hebrews have these vegan restaurants. Yeah. It's, it's not near the center of town. It's sort of in this rundown neighborhood near Howard. But outside of that, I'm with you. I kind of... Well, the, the, the undiscovered treasure in D.C., at least in my opinion is the Bible Museum. And oh, you're going to say, where is that? Yeah, it's on four... <laughs> it's, in, in, in the, uh, it's just across the, um, um, the National Mall from the Federal Courthouse. Um, oh, wow. And it was founded by the people who, who own the Hobby Lobby stores. Now, mm. um, you know, they were famous, obviously, for bringing a religious freedom case to the Supreme Court. They were also bibliophiles and collectors of biblical manuscripts and so forth. So they started to collect them, and they made, I guess, Hobby Lobby's pretty pretty lucrative because they started to collect rare manuscripts they went on a uh, a nationwide tour showing their stuff in communities somebody said you ought to do a museum it's a four-story world-class bible museum with ancient manuscripts um, reformation manuscripts some of the earliest manuscripts published in the united states 
uh, a Bible that was used in the New Haven colony um, back in the 16, uh, 60s. You know, so it, it's just it's a cool place. I love going there. So when you're in Washington doing these high pressure national controversial cases, you slip out and do your book nerd thing there. Book nerd thing. Or just I kind nourish of soul, my soul. soul. Yeah. But you, you do find time for that. Well, so when I, I went down to D.C. thinking that Proud Boys case would last about six weeks. We started December 19th, took a week off for the holidays, came back January 3rd, and didn't get out of town until May 8th. Oh, wow. And, and there were 13 lawyers in the case. The courtroom was as large as a couple tennis courts. We each had our own phone to the judge. And when you wanted to argue it, you didn't go to sidebar. He put a white noise machine on and everybody got on the phone. That's so interesting. It was intense. Wow, think about the cases you started here and how they went. We just stand up and talk and yeah. you know, like, can't hear yourself. Yeah. So, um, you know, there, the pleadings were filed all hours of the day and night. There were six FBI agents assigned to just be the investigators in the case. Usually there's one lead agent, but there were 20 terabytes of data to go through. And it was just, and there were five defendants. So it was overwhelming. Pleadings would come in all night long, early morning. You know, I, I, I'm an early to bed, early to rise type, so I'd, I'd be in bed eight, nine o'clock get up, you know, four or five o'clock and see stuff filed overnight that needed to be responded to by, by 9 a.m. So I made a rule, and that is I was going to take Saturdays off. Um, we and, do that too in the Jewish <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh, you're get you're, wearing, you're, you're having an influence. Um, <laughs> and so Saturdays I'd either read a book or visit a museum or both. And, and you go to that one often. Yeah. Yeah. Now you're a book guy, right? Don't you have? A, didn't you have a bookstore at some point? Still do. Uh, Whitlock Farm Booksellers on Twenty Sperry Road in Bethany. And you live early, so there you are in Washington, at the center of sort of the hot button, controversial news of the day, fast paced, and you're finding a way to still get your island, carve out your island of serenity mm-hmm. to ground you there. That's very interesting, Norm. Mm-hmm. Now let's get to the headlines. So you were spending all that time representing Joseph Biggs and Zachary Rell. Mm-hmm. Joseph Biggs was identified as a top lieutenant in the group that stormed the Capitol for the Proud Boys on January 6th. And he also is a roving InfoWars correspondent, because you're also the um, attorney for Alex Jones of InfoWars. You also represented Zachary Rell. Is that his name? I spell his name? Not at trial, but at sentencing, yes. And Uh, I will represent both Biggs and Rell on appeal. They ran the Philly Proud Boys chapter. Mm -hmm. And uh, he shot a canister of chemical spray at officers protecting the building, and then he was charged with lying about it at his trial. So you got the sentencing after all that. This was sort of like the big moment people are waiting four years after. Is someone going to be held accountable for the insurrection? The government wanted to send your guys away for 33 years. You convinced the judge, Timothy Kelly, to cut it in half. So it was still the, the biggest among the biggest penalties, the longest sentences, but not as long as the government wanted. And it seemed like you and the government each won one with the judge. Like uh, you didn't, he didn't agree with the prosecution that there was a level of extra planning that constituted terrorism, if I have that right? No, he, he held they were, they, they, it was terroristic activity. We, you know, you drop a quarter in this meter. We, we, we have till 7 p.m. tonight, right? Because once I get going, it's going to be hard to stop me. But it seems like you won one, they lost one. You lost on whether destroying the fence no, no, constituted no, no, terrorism. No, 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 no. Listen to me. If you need a hammer and, it's, and, you, see, and, you, and you look online and you see it's worth 10 bucks and you go to the hardware store and you see it's on the shelf there, and it's marked down from 30 to 15. Is it a bargain to buy it for 15? Mm-hmm. No, it's not. It's only worth 10. It's mm-hmm. the unscrupulous merchant problem. Oh. The internal confidential pretrial service memos to the judge calculated the sentences for these guys should have been about 10 years. We oh. wanted 10 or less. The government jacked these sentences 33. up through the roof, um, looking for you know, 30, 33 years. Kelly split the baby. We call him halfway Kelly. He always gives government <laughs> half of what he wants, but more. But it's still more than the case was worth. 
let me talk a little bit about the terrorism enhancement. Under federal law, sentences are calculated under something called sentencing guidelines. It's a thick phone book. Every offense gets points. You get points as a base offense level, and then you add points or subtract points based on offense characteristics. At trial, the government sought to have their sentences enhanced to, on a finding that they were terrorists. Uh, they were engaged in terrorist activity. Under the law, here's what that means. They had to do an activity to try to influence or retaliate against the government, and they did. Um, and then they had to commit a predicate offense, a related offense that, that, uh, from a list of 49 felonies. What are those? Destroying, a, uh, assassinating a public official, kidnapping a member of Congress, murdering an American citizen overseas, blowing up an airplane, using a weapon of mass destructive destruction. What did the Proud Boys do? They destroyed a $32,000, arguably, uh, the government argued, perimeter fence. And because destruction of government property is a predicate offense, the government sought to have them declared terrorists. It is an obscene and ridiculous mis misapplication of the but law. But halfway, Kelly didn't go with you on that one. Well, he went. No, he didn't. He said his hands were tied. And, you know, it's a sad day when a judge says, my hands are tied. I have to do the ridiculous. I can't well, do justice. Well, we've always felt that the mandatory minimums are a problem and some of the mandatory sentencing rules. We found that with the crack uh, right. sentences. But I don't think he agreed with you on the, on the terrorism. No, he didn't. He, he applied the enhancement, but then he varied downward. He gave a downward variance. So. But he did agree with you on this argument of extra level of planning. Another way the federal government tried to get a larger, longer sentence was saying that there was an extra level of planning than is typical. In these offenses, what's kind of interesting is these aren't there aren't enough offenses to know what are typical, right? They I'm, only happen every hundred years. I'm wincing because the the sentencing proceedings in this case were a low watermark in American jurisprudence. The government, the prosecutor Connor Mulrow, who gave the closing argument, stood up in front of the jury and said, "Look, this was an there doesn't need to be a plan to have a conspiracy. There can be an implicit understanding." Um, that is reached spontaneously. It could have been reached in this case after the first barricades to the Capitol were breached. And if that's all they did, that's still seditious conspiracy. And we'll talk about what that means in a moment. Um, the government never proved that there was a plan. Their cooperating witnesses on the stand said there was no plan, but then they argued a plan at sentencing. The Proud Boys testified that they had gone to cap the Capitol on several occasions in November, early uh, December, and in January um, to protest, to protest what they thought was a stolen election. When they were there, they got involved in acts of violence where they were attacked and attacked and members of Antifa, a left-leaning uh, left organization. Uh, they claimed that they prepared to defend themselves against Antifa, and the evidence shows that on January 6th, when they marched down the mall, what they were shouting was, F Antifa. They got to the area of the peace circle. None of the couple hundred Proud Boys who marched across the mall were carrying any flags or banners. President Trump was speaking at the Ellipse at that time. Um, when he said to people, go to the Capitol, fight. If you don't fight, we're not going to have a country anymore. His supporters had banners. When you look at the evidence, you see banners intermixing with the Proud Boys, and that's when the crowd erupted and people started to channel, chant, chant, whose capital, our capital. Our theory of the case was That's this. a left-wing chant. Whose streets are streets? <laughs> We're going to get to that later. Okay. Um, the, um, every, you know, the wings are clapping and the country's going crazy and God only knows what's going to happen in 2024. It's nice to have a ringside seat at this craziness we call home. But um, our theory of the case was this was a riot formed spontaneously. And one of the government's primary witnesses um, um, said that's what it felt like. He had served in Afghanistan, and he'd seen food riots formed. When you pass out a candy bar to a hungry kid, what did the other kids say? Where's mine? And he said it looked and felt just like that. People snapped in a moment.
this was not an insurrection. Um, this was not seditious conspiracy. It was a riot, and the case was overcharged. But you did say they were guilty of seditious conspiracy. I, if I did, I misspoke. Okay. The, jury, the jury found that yeah. they were guilty. So that was the jury finding. We argued against that and still believe it's wrong, and we'll take that up on appeal. Seditious conspiracy, what, and people don't, you know, what does that mean? All it means is that you uh, uh, use, a, a conspiracy is agree, an agreement between two or more people to accomplish some unlawful act. In the context of sedition, it is to use force against the authority of the United States government, period. And your the, point is they didn't plan to use force, they just did it, they came armed right. and you did it. Yeah. But why'd they come armed? They didn't come armed. Who told you that? You didn't see weapons there? Weapons. When they attacked the uh, police officers? The Proud Boys? What oh, weapons? you're saying Proud Boys is right. versus the others. Right. Okay, you're now, the government also had an unusual tools theory in this case, which I no, none of us had ever seen. This will also be an, an opportunity for appeal. Um, that, 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 that when they inspired people to protest, they knew that people would be inclined to act violently, and those people were their tools, whether they were co-conspirators or not. We argued that that was guilt by association and spread. Do them. you think the Oath Keepers were guilty, or is this because they're not your clients, you're not making the case for them? Because you did make statements to seem like the Oath Keepers were the people who did the really bad, big stuff here and not my clients. I think the Oath Keepers' behavior, I read the trial transcript of, the, of Stuart Rhodes' trial to prepare for the Proud Boys case. In that case, there was chilling testimony that they had engaged in paramilitary training, that they had gathered weapons um, and deposited those weapons across the Potomac and Virginia and had a boat prepared to move them across the river wow. on command. And so they were prepared to use weapons, and we were one phone call away from shooting there. So you did well by your client to argue contrasting them to the Oath Keepers. What if the Oath Keepers had hired you? What would you have argued? Um, it would have been a harder argument, I think, with respect to the weapons. I think what the Oath Keepers case and the Proud Boys case have in common is what we all share in this country, and that is a broader crisis of legitimacy. I've said it before, even in talking with you, I believe, you know, people were outraged when Donald Trump was elected in 2016, but that's complaining about the canary in the coal mine. Many, many people voted for him, and there are many, many angry people in the United States who believe our institutions have failed and that the country's betrayed. Um, there is a crisis of legitimacy where the difference between a person using lawful force and unlawful force is hard for many people to discern. Um, Jefferson said, "We get a, we have, and I argued this to the jury, and raised questions about it with jurors. We need a revolution every 19 years or so. We delegate government. So at what point do we consider that inspiring First Amendment protected speech? At what point do we see it as insurrection or crowded fire, shouting fire in a crowded theater? Well, shouting fire in a crowded theater is a bad metaphor. That, was over, that language is overruled. But the real test is incitement. And the lead case is Brandenburg. Um, um, and there's other cases, United States versus NATO, uh, United States versus Watts. But, Paul, I'm going to give you some black-letter law. This is law that no serious lawyer can disagree with. The United States Supreme Court said that mere abstract calls for violence at some future date are protected speech. Advocating violence is protected speech. Where it crosses the line is when it is done with an imminent risk of causing harm to occur. Mm -hmm. So I can say to you, Paul... This country's in trouble. We need, need to burn it revolution. down from the top. We need an armor revolution. Burn, baby, burn. Yeah, well, I can say that, and that's protected speech. NAACP versus Claiborne. Um, back, back in the civil rights era, NAACP picketing um, um, stores, and um, I can't remember who it was. It might have been Adam Clayton Powell, but somebody stood up and said, look, I'm going to break the GD neck of any MF who crosses this picket line. He was charged, and he was acquitted because that's... A, that, that's and the, yet in the 50s under the Smith Act... 
members of the Communist Party, including in New Haven, were jailed not for adv- not for advocating not for advocating the overthrow of the government, but conspiring to and, advocate for the overthrow of the government. And that's a hu- that's a line that that was policed, and, and in this case, and will come up on appeal. Not one the government spent more money than than New Haven has to prosecute this case. So it was an amazing. But what? Of, how did that Smith Act argument me, jive with what you're saying? The I'm going to explain that. I'm going to explain that. Um, we, you cannot conspire, you cannot agree with another to accomplish an unlawful end. Overthrowing the government might constitute that. And so you can advocate might. the overthrow, but you can't conspire to advocate the you overthrow? You can't plan to do it. Um, you can't engage in conduct. So what's Orwellian about that is that you can say, overthrow the government, let's go, but you can't say, let's get together and talk about advocating to overthrow the government. Is that still the case? Well, it's a little bizarre, Norm. It is a little bizarre, and that's one of the issues that's going to go up on appeal in the Proud Boys case. We kept arguing under Brandenburg that there wasn't a single comment that any of the Proud Boys made, and they went through thousands of, our, of hours of communications um, that was prohibited in and of itself. They couldn't have been prosecuted for anything they said. The government used their speech, however, to, sh- to explain their conduct when the riot began on January 6th, and our argument was that burdened or chilled freedom of speech. Um, and much to our benefit... In late June of this year, the United States Supreme Court decided a case called Counterman versus Colorado. That was a so-called true threats case. And so it used to be a true threat. Was, uh, could be um, if I say something that's threatening and a reasonable person heard it and felt afraid, well, I'm guilty. The Supreme Court said that, that, that chills speech. That chills vigorous speech. There has to be some subjective awareness on the part of the individual uttering the speech that his words could cause harm. In this case, um, and, 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 the, and the Supreme Court went on to argue, we have to be careful with regulation of speech because we don't want to chill vigorous speech, especially in the political context. Speaking of vigorous speech, we're talking to Norm Pattis, criminal defense attorney from New Haven, who has been half spending a lot of his time in D.C. these days representing the Proud Boys, including two who were just sentenced for uh, more than a decade in prison for their role in the January 6th. Uh, Riot. Right, okay. We, we want to get the language right here. So I want to go a little bigger picture on the case, Norm. Um, here's what Judge Halfway Kelly, that's a good phrase, said, um, his bottom line in the, in the sentencing that you took part in. He said, what happened on January 6th harmed an important American custom. That day broke our tradition of peacefully transferring power, which is among the most precious things we had as Americans. Notice I say it had. We don't have it anymore. Did you agree with the judge about that? No, he sounds like a flunky for the Justice Department. That's hyperbolic nonsense. Here's what the really, evidence... You don't think January 6th was a, was a significant threat to our country when they tried to assassinate the vice president and stop us from counting Nobody electoral votes? Nobody tried to assassinate They said, the hang my pants. They had him six years better wish him out. They, they were looking for him. Some people did chant that. And hang Mike Pence yeah. and looking for him running after him. Yeah. You don't consider that. While he's supposed to carry out his duty... Under our system, the most fundamental part of our democracy. You go to a ball game and the chants clowning kill. The, the crowd's chanting kill. Does the other team? Context, Norm. They broke into the Capitol. They were, there was violence and they said, we want to hang Mike Pence. And they were looking for him. And his job, his job was to certify an election. Here's what that, happened. How could that not be a threat to our country? Oh. Please. Are you serious? <laughs> I'm serious. The oh. congressman we're I brought you down. a bottle of bourbon here. Yeah, Have I a need drink. To open you it need now. it. Yeah, I'm going to open it now. Now, look, here's what the evidence showed at trial. Um, there was expected to be a fight over certification of the election results. Um, Trump and his advisors believed that, that Pence had the authority not to certify or at most to delay. 
Um, Pence didn't. And so there was a constitutional conflict about the role of the vice president in that event. Pence took the view that it was a ministerial act. Um, Trump took another view. He inspired his people to go to the Capitol. Um, there was a fake uh, gallows out there. I, th- I thought you were going to say they were going to try to hang him on that. You couldn't hang your dog on that. It wouldn't bear the weight. Um, some people did utter um, despicable chants. Some people did enter the building. Nobody entered armed with a weapon. Um, nobody had a plan to find Mike Pence. They had the, the knuckle stuff, right, and the chains that they used? A few people did, yeah. You could kill people with that. Yeah, you could kill people with you could kill people with your car keys. Right, so it's the intention of what you. I mean, if you're going to take look, I got a phone call from a dear friend of mine who I believe is listening now, Jim Nugent, two zero three seven nine five eleven eleven, the state's <laughs> premier personal injury lawyer. If you're injured in a car crash, call Jim. I love you, Jim. Um, he called. I was at home writing a brief that day. He said, "You got to turn your television on. Um, there's there, there's a coup going on in the Capitol, or words to that effect." I look. I turned it on, and I I just turned it right off. It was ridiculous. It was no coup. Nobody took over the airwaves. They didn't come armed with weapons. They didn't try to take over. They didn't have a plan to They displace. did try to take over. They stormed the Capitol, tried to stop it the proceeding. A, yeah. They were chasing and went into the office and took over the offices. The lawmakers were and hiding in the basement. And stopped it for six to eight hours. Now, the Capitol police... So what you're saying is they didn't succeed as much as if they had actually gotten all the way because they got stopped by law enforcement. The military was called out. The military was not... This is a, you know an issue that people blame Trump for. The military was never called in to intervene and stop the proceeding. Local law enforcement was underprepared. But the Capitol Police were prepared to be present there for three or four days. And they it was not fully staffed when the riot broke out because they had people sitting at home so that they could cover it 24 hours a day. There are about 1,600 members of the Capitol Police Department. I think the riot took place. People were angry. There may have been some individuals in there who might have in, who might have done violence. But to attribute what the, the, the hot-headed remarks of a couple individuals to the group as a whole and to make this into a threat against American institutions is to demean the strength and power of our institutions. Throughout this entire drama, um, the courts remained open. The Capitol was shut down for several hours. When Puerto Rican nationalists shot up the Capitol, were people saying, oh, my God, the republic is about to collapse? When the Weather other gr- Underground um, blew up a bomb the in one of the Capitol. The Weather was serious terrorism. They were. What the Weather Underground did was... But nobody said the republic's at, at risk. Because they didn't do it at the moment. They're trying to certify election, the most fundamental part, underpinning of what makes a democracy. The peaceful transition of power, yeah. correct. And it, and it went in our institutions held. We had a riot. We had angry people. So the, question, the-, the question people aren't asking is, you know, you got the commander-in-chief guy who get garnered i guess 75 million votes standing a, a block or so away a, c- a couple miles away from um uh from the capital basically saying it's a stolen election stop it i think there are things more fundamental um to the integrity of american life than delaying the counting of ballots for a while one might be a stolen election and are people to be penalized and criminalized because they believe the president they voted for? It the man who was still president be, of the United States? If the person States, is deliberately feeding them wacko lies to try to undermine, that's How are they different. supposed to know that? And he hasn't been charged with seditious conspiracy. Right, so, let, I mean, point. you know, the Justice Department's picking, you know, picking at the low-hanging fruit, but it's balking at the main event. Okay, so you think Donald Trump planned it? Put up or shut up. He's, uh, I, I don't think he planned, I think he knows. I'm not how, saying it to you, I'm yeah, saying it to the But Justice I do think Department. he was delighting in it and wanted to go there. Well, um, <laughs> he may have, but and, it, have it, and suppose, and I, su- I suspect we'll see this at his trial, suppose yeah. he had a, suppose he genuinely believed the election had been stolen. I can tell you. He's that done the, that every time, and when he lost the Iowa primary to, um, 
to Ted Cruz. He said that was stolen. That's just the playbook. Before the election, he said, I'm going to say it's stolen if I lose. I'm not a Donald Trump fan. Don't get me wrong. We tried to subpoena him to the trial and we couldn't get through the Secret Service. Okay, I, I, had, I got some questions for the Donald. Okay, um, but I, I do think that if you're an ordinary, many of the people, one of the reasons I wanted to take the Proud Boys case when they called, I was delighted. Is that, you know, I, wanted, I wondered, what's going on in this country? And so I spent a lot of time talking to people. And here's the narrative I heard. It's 2020. There's a pandemic, lockdown, you can't go to work, you can't leave your house, you got to mask up, everybody's got a social distance. A George Floyd gets killed and suddenly it's, a public, it's, it's acceptable to take to the streets and protest and there are mostly peaceful protests. A lot of people saw their communities go up in flames or at least parts of them and they were outraged by that. And what was the federal government's response? Well, there really wasn't one. Instead, Kamala Harris was trying to bond them out. These are people who felt their country was being taken from them and they were, and there are people still Trump in this country. Trump was in charge at that time. There are still people who believe it is being taken mm -hmm. from them. They turned out in response to the government's call uh, or the president's call, um, and they reacted. And you know, to me, there's a more fundamental threat than delaying the count of the vote. That's stealing it outright. All right. And so, um, your one of your two proud boy um, clients, Rel, did. Cr sob on the stand if the if the or cried on the stand well, he wasn't on the stand but he was at the podium at, at, at the at the um when he was sentenced he apologized to the prosecution he said he had believed lies about the election mm -hmm. did you agree with him Were i don't lies? believe the election was stolen i don't know what was in trump's mind i know that 60 some proceedings were brought in court not one of them succeeded I was stunned in those months as the events unfolded. I had a lot of respect for Sidney Powell. She'd done some really? great work, had, prior to oh. these events. And then she comes out and talks about her stuff, and I'm thinking, well, let's see what she's got. She never produced. Okay? So your so, client said he believed lies. Right. What does that mean for the liars? Who's responsible? If these were lies that led to all this, and your own client said he broke the law because he believed lies. He, he engaged in trespass, yes. So who should be responsible for January 6th? Who should go to prison? You know, I don't know that anybody should necessarily go to prison. Um, I mean, there, you know, the, these, the, it's a horrific thing to be charged with a federal offense. They did two and a half years in detention pretrial, much of it in solitary confinement given the charges. That would be enough, it would seem to me. The notion that they need to spend a decade or more behind bars is ridiculous. You don't think there should be penalties for disrupting the counting of ballots? And not the, not a, there can't, I never said that they were innocent of all charges. I said that the government massively overcharged this, and they're overcharging it because they, they want to make a point. They want to scare the life out of people to never do this again. We're a violent, is that a bad thing? I think it is. We're a we, we want them to do that again? John Locke. So let's talk about the founding of the Republic. Um, one of my new girl crushes is a recently deceased uh, philosopher named Mary Midgley. And she wrote a fascinating book about social contract theory. She said, you know, John Locke and the social contract theorists wrote to undermine the theory of the divine right of kings, that power flowed from God, James I's idea, the Stuart, the Stuart position, the Stuart dynasty position. The social contract theory said government has its um, foundation or source in the people, in the consent of the people, and that consent can be withdrawn. And John Locke talked about um, 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 the, the appeal to heaven. Jefferson talked about the ability to withdraw um, consent. Um, the Declaration of Independence is founded in a theory of resistance, and we were born in resistance. And I think the moment you crush the spirit of individuals who try to claim their own sovereignty back, you're on a road to totalitarianism. And I, 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 don't, I don't fear Donald Trump. I do worry about the Democratic Party. Mm -hmm. So you're not worried about there'd be less 
freedoms if he were elected. At this time, he'd have used the military when they were protesting. He's not, thank you, military. No, that's ridiculous. Right, when did he ever? You know, for, for the four years that Trump want, was in president, we, 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 it was one of the few times in our nation's history we didn't start another war. All right, so you voting for him again? If I had to go into it, I didn't vote last time out of deference to my wife, who's so outraged by my <laughs> politics that I think she may or may not be thrilled to be my wife. Um, so I, I sat that one out. But if I, had to, if I went into a polling place today and I was required to vote on pain of going to hell, um, I would vote Trump because Trump is a disruptor and I don't want government managing my life. I think the fundamental threat to liberty in the United States now is the emergence of something I'll call the public health state. I know for a Jewish person, we look at what he we looked at what happened with January 6th as similar to Hitler trying to create a, a false um, emergency with the Reichstag and that that becomes a, cause he oh, think, cause please, Paul, Powell I and love others, you and Powell my wife and is others, Jewish. Powell and others were suggesting martial law, stopping election. They were still, as you pointed Did out. Did you feel that crazy. way about Kent state? Yeah. Did you, somewhere, I'm going to get that right now, yeah. but I think we probably could agree about Hunter Biden. You know, I don't know that I care about Hunter Biden. He's a middle-aged crackhead who basically has a daddy with a big name and appears to trade on that name. And is in, in, in But we're not upset that, that, that the Biden did help him, even if he didn't make money out of it. Even, like, he, he I think Congress should take a look at that. About it. Yeah. Congress should take a look so, at like, that. So I th- kind of feel like on my side, the liberals think our shit doesn't stink. Like, I don't agree with you about Trump. I think he did a lot of dangerous stuff, but that when we do the same what, thing. Name one dangerous thing he did. It was, um, don't take too much time now. <laughs> when he walked across the mall during the Floyd thing and tried to have the army come with him. Do you remember that? Yeah. And that was dangerous because... Or when he told people to go storm the Capitol to stop the vote. He didn't tell people to go storm He said, go fight like hell. Or you won't have a country anymore. Right. And you know what that was. That was a wink. He actually called out the troops for an insurrection against the fundamentals oh, of our democracy. Oh, come on, Paul. That, that was is scary just, shit, Storm. That is just such melodramatic nonsense. People are dying by the tens of thousands in the United States by something called deaths of despair. Keaton, um, Deaton and Case wrote that book. And what we're finding is in middle America, middle class people feel that they don't have a country, a place in this country any longer. They're drinking themselves to death. They're using opioids. Um, and, and, and they're, they're out and out just blowing their brains out, killing themselves. The country is out of control. People feel they don't have significance in their own life. Donald Trump is their voice. And you think when he named these justices who did the ruling on abortion, that doesn't concern you at all? Even though they had some arguments Does it, did it concern about, you that when, when the left went out, out outside of Kavanaugh's home or, or were they... Yes, completely against that. Completely. Okay. And I think I... I and think, should they be penalized our, for Yes. It? And I think our side is wrong about Thomas. We haven't we don't proved have that sides. quid pro quo. We've got to, you've got to stop saying our side. Right. I don't have right. a side. Oh, because let's talk about Kent State. We're right. talking Norm Pattis here. So what's interesting to me when I talk to you when we bumped each other on the street is that the left... And like, I, I know it's not as simplistic as I'm the left because I don't always agree with the left about certain things. But like, but I do like support Bernie Sanders. And like when I think about COINTELPRO and the overreach of the government against the Black Panthers and the white radicals, not against the weathermen, but like I did feel that was overreach and dangerous and against the freedom to protest. It was. So I think why, and you point out to me, say, well, you guys don't, don't get as outraged when they do it to the Proud Boys. And no, the because right. right now, we're, you know, if, if you disagree with the, the, the left's narrative, you're a white supremacist. Right. And no, but separate from the racial thing. 
The, no, it's all about race. It's not all about no, race. You, you, no, that, that's Telfer, a systemic. No, Cohen but no, Telfer, today, SDS, though, today know, to say it's know, not all about race is to deny systemic point, racism. The point, Check your privilege, but Paul. But that's different, Norm. I'm talking about, the, you pointed out that people on the left who didn't like what was done with SDS, the mm -hmm. black race, the whole thing, government outreach, we used to be the ones who felt the FBI overreach was suppressing dissent and freedom and the importance of challenging the government. And, and the right had had supported it in the Republican Party saying these radicals are dangerous. They said, you know, and now the tables have turned and people like me are very supportive of the Justice Department going after your clients. So you kind of challenged me and made me think about that. And one thing I thought about, okay, so under COINTELPRO, they didn't just do what they did with the Proud Boys, unless you're going to point out stuff I didn't know, because we worried about wiretapping, legal wiretapping, that happened here without the warrants and all that. But, you know, they used to get, they used to cooperate with the police to murder well, dissidents. Hampton, yeah. Hampton in his bed, the FBI and local police. Yeah. And in New Haven, they tried to get them to kill each other. And it's possible we don't have evidence that that's why Alex Rackley was killed. But of course, the Black Panthers are culpable for some of the people they had. But that people who they wrote notes pretending to be Panthers to try to get them to kill each other. Or in, in California, the thing without getting too in the weeds that brought the whole New Haven case here was that a rival black nationalist group shot to death a guy from New Haven who had become a leader in L.A., John Huggins. And the person who shot him to death was an FBI informer. Mm -hmm. So obviously we all felt that that's going way overboard in the church committee. So I was very challenged when you said to me, how come you don't like it with the Proud Boys? And I do agree with you, we do have to think about that, but I don't see, are there, are there tactics they've done of overreach that is any way comparable to that, Norm? We don't know right now, and we can't know. And so let me tell you a story. But does anything pop in your head? I mean, I'll do the do-do-do you gave with me. Just like top of your head, anything dangerous that happened with overreach with them? Because I have a feeling the answer might be yes. So what was? I'm what not aware of the FBI doing what J. Edgar Hoover authorized them to do, and that is to try to tell lies about one another to inspire violence. Because I have a sense that you're right, they were being hypocrites. Because the left listen, is let hypocritical let me, about this stuff, but I'm looking for some evidence here. Well, I can't tell you everything I know because I'm under court order not to. During the Proud You'd Boys trial. You'd have to trial, kill me, right? No, I'd have to lose my law license, and maybe it's worth it. I don't know. I it think is about me that. for our listeners. <laughs> I, um, you know, uh, during the Proud Boys trial, we repeatedly went off the record and sealed the courtroom, threw the press out, and threw the public out so that we could talk about the use of confidential informants to investigate this case. And, um, and it was my, one of my roles in the trial. It fell to me to try to open this door in the jury's presence. And I got it partially opened. And one day I kicked at a jar a little bit more. And after trial, some senior Justice Department people came to pay me a visit. And they said, what do you want? And I said, I want to know how many confidential human sources were embedded in the Proud Boys by the FBI from the time of the election until then. And why couldn't they reveal that without the identities? Um, they didn't because they took the position that their sources and methods um, um, shouldn't be revealed. But number could be revealed. They took the position initially that none of this could be revealed. But, okay. So we kicked the door open. So they agreed to stipulate that there were, quote, at least eight. Um, and I know their identities and I've been given a sealed booklet about them, but I'm ordered not to disclose them. I also know that the FBI has a chain of command and there's an internal structure and somebody who gets to decide when and when a person does not get to know about them. Um, we took the stipulation rather than trying to force that door wider open because it benefited our client. I wasn't a journalist. I was So it helps you win the case if you just get that eight number right. in the record without fighting but now you can get 12. I'm going to file an FOI request of the FBI for all this information as a matter of public record. And when it's That's denied... That's going to take years, Norm. When it's denied, we'll go to court. But this is the church committee problem. We've got... We, we, we are aware that Roman Catholics... Doing so you the don't Latin, have... A wait, wait. Roman Catholics citing the Latin mass are regarded as extremists. 
parents appearing at school boards because they don't want their children taught, you know, being told that it's okay to be transgender, or maybe they don't want a school board adopting a policy that their their, their child can change gender and, and with the complicity of the school district, but the school district won't tell the parents. These people are regarded as extremists. Right, so I think I think your point is well taken about our side. Our side, people who were concerned about the overreach of intelligence. Your side, my side. war. I agree. What but, but is like, but, it good? So for? those of us who were against the FBI overreach should be against it now. So I think you're right that those of us who were concerned then, for the most part, are not as concerned as we should be because of who they are. But you haven't convinced me that it's of the same level of outrage. Don't know that. I mean, look. I wasn't paying attention to any of this, the, the FBI prior to the Proud Boys. I, I got a taste of it during trial. Um, you know, there, and, and, you know, the, the, the thing that's truly disturbing in this case is what it's brought out of the woodwork. Not a day goes by where I'm not getting a call from someone around the country wanting to show me a tape that proves the FBI did this, that, or the other thing. And my fear is that, Jan, that because of the severity of the Justice Department's reaction to January 6th, it's going to become a, 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 the next Kennedy assassination. We're going to spend the next 10 to 15 to 20 years sorting out what happened there. What's your take day? about that, by the way? Did you see the new interview with the guy who was in the car when the shot came and said it was definitely two guns? Yeah, so I'm re- it, it, I, I am and I have a confession to make. When, when, when all Mark Lane and company first started writing, I was in college, and I went to the, the library, <laughs> and I thought, I'm going to read the Warren Commission report. And I read a couple volumes, and I thought, this is just BS. I don't care about Lee Harvey Oswald dental records. Well, I, I read the report about the new book. I've ordered the book. I've read just recently another one of Mark Lane's books. And then I just, for the first time, read Norman Mailer's Harlot's Ghost, which ends at about the time of the Kennedy assassination. And it's an inside look of fictive, but based in history of the FBI and its the CIA and its animosity to Kennedy. So, Paul, to my home now arrives from time to time an, uh, a box, and I'm acquiring and assembling the 26-volume a Warren oh. Commission report, and I'm going to go through it. Now that I've spent 30 years in courtroom and know what evidence is, I want to see, did they really make a fair account of the evidence? Well, it wasn't a pretty clear warrant. They just, therefore, they wanted to, like, just make sure the country, quote, unquote, moved on. I think that's right, and Alan Dulles was largely the general there, the former head of the CIA. But, I mean, there's no way that, like, the Jack Ruby thing just happened by accident. I mean, you, you can't, you can't. I know, but you want it's to avoid a, the... You're it, right that it's about, should be about facts and evidence rather than guts and feelings, but I don't think any... Well, the magic bullet person theory. looks at that and says that it's remotely credible that it was just a lone gunman. But you know, Ch- Chief Justice Earl Warren was there. You know, Gerald Ford, who later became President of the United States, was and there. Philip Nixon Russell was feeling there. Feeling that you need to move on just yeah. for the country's healing. I don't think we need to move on. I think we need to get to the nature and sources of public power and make sure that that power doesn't strangle us in our in our beds. And I think there's a danger that that's going to be happening. In the and warning of that danger is Norm Pattis, criminal defense attorney from New Haven, who's been hanging out in Washington, representing the Proud Boys, and Alex Jones. And Owen so, Troyer. So, yeah. uh, that's right. So Alex Jones was the InfoWars guy. He, I think, puts to test the ultimate question for defense lawyers. So we have an... We all believe in this country for the most part that everyone deserves a defense, that we believe that truth comes from the competition of ideas, that people should each have the right to make their case in a, no matter how unpopular the person is, and they all should have legal representation. So you have represented probably what many of us consider the most vile, evil person in America. I've never represented Joe Biden. No, Alex. 
<laughs> Alex, oh, come on, that's ridiculous. You of know, course, that's I know ridiculous. it is, but okay, I, you yeah. want to be a provocateur? I'll but, uh, provoke no, no, back. But I, I'm saying this. I mean, I'm not a sleepy Joe you, guy who sells the country out so his son can make a profit and falls upstairs and can't pronounce my name half the time on a bad day. Unlike Trump, who had the beautiful walk up to his when he tripped coming down from the airplane. But that's okay. That's not the important stuff. Alex, you know, I've always agreed with you that it's important to be able to represent unpopular people. And that's at the heart of our system. So, you know, everyone, when they really looked at it, said Norman's not, like, doing anything wrong by representing Alex Jones. I used to have these conversations with my father, who's, who's been dead for 23 years. He was an attorney, and he, he didn't do criminal offense. But he came to the conclusion, even though it didn't impact how he did his work, because he, he represented unpopular people, that the wrong rewards are in our system. That, yes, everybody should get a good defense, but he says the Britain system's different, where the rewards are... For if you represent your client's interests, but you also help arrive at the truth, like you don't try to get untrue things said, you don't try to get somebody declared innocent if they actually did the crime, but rather make sure their rights are corrected and they're not unfairly tried, or as in your case with the Proud Boys, which I think a lot of people would agree to you that, like how severe should the sentence be? So with Alex Jones, you have someone, and maybe you don't agree with this, that really isn't a journalist. He's someone who knowingly makes up stories to get, a big audience to sell bullshit products, but in the process destroys people's lives already been victim. I mean, these poor people at Sandy Hook, parents who lost their kids. Alex Jones has millions of people believing with no basis and knowing it's not true that they were somehow actors and their kids were never killed. And they get the mob incited by Jones to, to harass them so much they have to keep moving every six months and destroy their lives. I don't think that means Alex Jones shouldn't have a lawyer when he's charged, and I'm not criticizing you at all for being his lawyer. But I'm wondering, does that show a failure of the system? That so, you should really be trying to make sure Alex Jones isn't unfairly charged over, but that the real, the real goal there would be that, he, that no one tries to pretend Alex Jones hasn't committed pure evil that victimized these innocent people, but rather that his rights are protected and that it's a fair proceeding. I don't think that it was ever proven that he is pure evil who victimized innocent That's people. That's a fact. No, it's not. It, there was a, no, there was a default judgment, and he lost the ability to defend that case because he didn't comply with discovery. He's that disorganized. And a trial judge was persuaded that that was willful, and then she relieved the plaintiffs of the need to prove causation. So there was testimony that somebody heard that somebody told somebody that someone had urinated on a child's grave. Kaboom! That's Alex's fault. The $64 million question in this case is, what is it in this country that makes Alex Jones possible? He doesn't wake up in the morning and persuade people. Why are people, people believing? Why is he making money peddling? Uh, why do people things? believe him? If it's pure nonsense, but why are people, people buying it? Because people always buy pure nonsense. You can always hustle people and, and incite mobs with stuff that they want to hear. Have you ever read anything Alex Jones wrote? Yes. Do you read The Great Reset? No. Do you, what do you think of Klaus Schwab and the World Economic Forum? I'm not aware of them. Take a look at it. You know, if you look at the... But wait, about Sandy Hook thing, saying these... He these was parents, wrong about Sandy Hook. But it's not just wrong. He deliberately destroyed the lives of people who lost their kids. He didn't deliberately destroy anybody's He deliberately lives. took actions that would make himself money, knowing it wasn't true, that led to the absolute torture and, and destruction of lives of parents who had already and lost their kids. And you think that's kids. Alex's fault? Totally. You're His wrong mob. about that. You think someone else would just come along and said, go, I think there are people here's their to phone this, number, When I represented them. Alex Jones, the amount of hate mail I got was overwhelming. It probably ran seven to three against Alex Jones. But the three who supported him accused me of being not vigorous enough in his defense. I should I'm have not moved, talking about should have moved. Here. I should have moved. No, I know that. But I'm talking about the public at large. Oh, should have moved to exhume the bodies. Um, Wolfgang Halbeg is still out there and trying to incite people about this daily.
Um, it was a very small part of his programming. Um, um, the, the, defendant, the plaintiffs in this case were able to prohibit him from saying that because they didn't keep a complete log of their shows. YouTube deplatformed him. He couldn't get the history. He couldn't say, you know, he, he didn't provide them the answers they wanted. Judge Bellis an entered defaults and entered orders that made it impossible for him to get a fair trial. And we will argue um, his appeal uh, next That's year. That's doing your job. I'm not arguing about that. He should get a fair trial. So was he wrong? Talk, I'm not no, talking but about look, Norm. I'm was he $1.5 billion wrong? Totally. I think, oh. he, I think he should not be, I think he should be bankrupted for life. You and I probably agreed that he shouldn't be in prison, but he should be bankrupted for life. He might be, but he's still going to speak. Of these people. He's, he's right. still free to speak. But we are not free to libel and knowingly destroy the lives but of people. But when a As plaintiff a reporter, goes Norm, to court, they have to prove the extent of their right. damages. And this, but the plaintiffs were relieved from doing. I'm not talking about the law here. You know that those parents were not actors. You know, I know that, that, yeah. and you know, that Alex Jones gave people the mob the tools to destroy their lives so that it keep moving that every six months. That is just hyperbole again. Now it's we're, not you're hyperbole, back it's to a the fact. No, it's they not a just, fact. They, they, the fact is tools. that he's made these assumptions. I mean, he made these assertions. He gave them what was it, the email address or the phone number. Their their locations were found. He posted one person's location, and then they had to keep moving after they lost. He posted their kid. one person's location. There's an FBI agent whose name he never used, who got nine, and who he, he referred to as looking like one of the parents, and suggested and suggest there was an FBI agent who was a first responder. I don't want to use his name. Um, who uh, Jones said looked like one of the parents, and maybe it was the same guy. That guy got ninety million dollars in damages. But I Norm, mean, come Norm, on, Paul. if I write an article. Getting ninety people. million. If I dollars. write an article knowingly stating that somebody has committed murder or does something terrible, and then the and then people reading my article because of that, I say, "Here's where he lives. Go get him." And he didn't do strived. that. Okay, if I write an article saying this person did some horrible act and I knew it wasn't true, and because of whatever, and I said, and I suggest that they be. That they be there is no mob quite so fearsome and destructive as a self righteous mob. Okay, you're and the mob has gone after but, Alex Jones. But you and I agree with that part. But the part is what he did to those families. He didn't do anything. As to a the journalist, families. I am not. It's not okay under free speech to knowingly say horrible, untrue facts about people. No, that and then if you do say that, then the person, their lives. Well, but again, saying it doesn't lead to the violence and the destruction. Saying it is damaging. The violence and destruction, you have to prove causation as to those so comments. Should there be liable for that? Yes, but what's and the slander. extent of liability? Huge. It wouldn't have happened if he didn't say it. You don't know that. And the jury wasn't permitted to consider that because alternative sources of that information... Okay, what about were, the larger point about the legal system? And again, taking out norms. Not a criticism of norm. We all believe in which you get a lawyer. Should we change our system so that the incentive for lawyers on both sides is to help make sure everyone's rights are protected, it's a fair judgment, but that wrongdoing that the right result is reached they don't make money by getting a killer off who really killed you don't get money by the getting law already a slander does that. off but that you you can't the law already does that you can't you can't charge a contingency fee in a criminal case for that very reason so that you have an incentive um lawyers no, have but you get more clients if you get them off that's um that's the market at work um the law says Should a, the market be taken out of jurisprudence and what everybody's got to have a public defender no thank you or if the lawyer, if the, we somehow build rewards into the system so that Norm, who is a fantastic lawyer, that Norm gets his prominence and his new clients based on what a great job he did, not just representing their legal interests, but helping everyone arrive at the truth. But what is the truth? You think it's something that it's like low-hanging fruit that it's easy it's to It's so low-hanging with Alex Jones. There's so many cases it's not low-hanging, but some things are true. 
I, and what you he and said I will disagree. What we, he we said will about disa- those parents, we, we will there's agree. no defense of what he we did to those We will agree parents. that what he said was untrue. I can agree to that, but I don't agree that there's he no caused anywhere. There's no defense of that. I, agree, I don't agree that he caused the extent of the damages. That, that, Does he that have any blood worked. in his hands? No. Okay. If you, I mean, I, show, me the, show me the first drop. Those people moving and having the people harassing them all the time after he printed their Somebody address. listens to what Alex says and they're mm-hmm. inspired to act, and that's Alex's fault. What about the agency of the intervening person? They both are. Mm-hmm. They're both their fault. You know, I think it's dangerous. If you're going to start punishing people for what they believe that they've heard, um, um, then we're going to be afraid to speak, and the results is going to be we'll sing the Christian fundamentalist camp tune, Trust and Obey is the national anthem. That's not the republic I grew up in. It's not the one I want to live in. Um, as to incentives for criminal defense, lawyers have a duty not to knowingly present false testimony to the court. Um, a criminal defense, for example, lawyer has a duty of zealous advocacy and of candor toward the tribunal. A prosecutor has those duties as well. It also has a, or he or she also has a duty to do justice. The incentives for good lawyers are there to do the right thing. The difference between the adversarial system and the inquisitorial system is the inquisitorial system, everybody works together to get, quote unquote, the right result, whatever that is. In the United States, we've always said it's better that 10 guilty people go free than one innocent be convicted. That's in Ray Winship. And we have an adversarial system where we leave it to fact finders to determine the truth and we let lawyers fight because we believe that the vigorous exchange of ideas will permit others to arrive. Right. So basically, but then in real life, who can afford the... Norm Patterson, who can't, I don't mean Norm, I mean who could afford the really good lawyers versus the overstressed public defender. But also the question is whether the adversarial inquisitive system ends up making sure that that one person at 10 does it. So you're kind of arguing that the John Stewart Mill, that the vigorous position of all sides will lead to that truth best if they want the incentive, which I'm not saying you're wrong. No, but I, I hate I'm this. saying I wrestle with this question, because both, both systems are imperfect. Because of the way money works in our system, it doesn't work the way we want. But also the inquisitive system often gives the state too much power and doesn't give enough incentive for the outcast, for the person without power, unpopular ideas to be heard. So I don't know. You don't know despair until you've stood next to somebody facing decades behind bars on the day of sentencing and realize how pointless the charade is. Criminal sentences achieve almost nothing in almost every case. Almost no one plans to kill when they wake up in the morning. And when they do, they're locked away for 30, 40, 50, 60 years for a mistake they've made. And we pretend it's justice. It's not. Um, We waste lives in the criminal justice system. And the notion that somehow truth and incarceration um, have an independent social value um, doesn't, doesn't inspire me. I am deeply distrustful of the state, and I dislike the state. I'll go so far as to say I hate the state. I like most of the state officials that I've met or government officials that I've met, but I don't want government in my life. Well, I, do, um, I think we agree on a lot of it, especially the part about incarceration not so, solving in most cases. Because I don't want the state in my life, I like Donald Trump because Donald Trump is a disruptor um, and he's not going to be telling us what's in our nation. He's not going to be like the governor of New Mexico saying we need a public health exception to the right to possess guns. So he's not going to be like the CDC. Norm? Are you going to be? Are these guys going to be appealing these two proud boy guys? Oh, absolutely. I've already filed the notices. And of do appeal. you think if Trump gets elected, they'll be pardoned? You know, are you going to seek a pardon? Somebody will. I will. I mean, I'm. I'm not a. You know, people. My wife was terrified when the case was over. Please don't tell me Donald Trump's going to call. I said I, I lost. I don't think so. And I got long hair. And I. Somebody. You know, according to people in the newspaper, I look like an unmade bed. I'm not Donald Trump. Trump's type. I don't particularly like the guy. I don't trust him. 
Um, when he could have pardoned, he didn't. Um, I think his rhetoric about stolen elections was irresponsible. I think he's taking advantage of a deeply divided country, and we need to learn how to talk and to I agree one with another. Harry has been posting that we have to be equal and point out the way liberals also talk about stolen elections. Well, yeah, that it does, but I mean, the the point the, these these this is sound and fury signifying nothing. We are lost. So you don't right want to pardon? You don't want to pardon for these guys? Oh, I, well, they're my clients, of course. So then, in, so thank you for coming on the air. We are running out of time. What do you mean we're out of time? You told me we we're going to be here till six o'clock. But I will read a poem called "Pardon" in your honor, since you're seeking a pardon. I beg your pardon. I never promised you an Olive Garden, <laughs> but if they serve palm frites, then pull up a seat. It'll be my treat, because palm frites can't be beaten till the arteries harden. So please pardon me. At the age of 63, I've lost memory of the crime that led to the time that stole my prime. Stock picking, bootlicking, intuitive sticking, rapacity. Pardon, madame, I got a scram. I'm on the lamb from Vietnam, or was it green eggs and ham? Either way, it's water over the same damn pardon garden. Nicely done. Nicely That's done. That's in your honor. Thank you. Because I love to talk to you so much. You make me think... And it's always an honor to sit and talk to Norm Pattis. Thanks for having me, Paul. All right. Thanks to Harry Droz, the best station manager in the business. I haven't met them all or most of them, but I'm still holding to that position because <laughs> it's not about facts. It's about feelings. We're going to take it out with the Afro-Semitic experience performing I Wish I Knew How It Feel to Be Free from the group CD, A Plea for Peace. This is Paul Bass inviting you to fly free with us all day, all night, and all weekend long. And Happy New Year as well. WNHH New Haven's home for community radio. Mm-hmm.